welcome back to another edition of uh, Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. We're here live at the Post Theater with all of you all. All right, uh, first of all, let's uh, introduce our panel. Um, I am, of course, incomplete without, by my side, the lovely Zilpa. Hey, Zilpa. Good. All right. Everybody. Zilf always sits on my right, so here you are. Um, we have a couple of other of our um, great panelists. Um, first of all, here from uh, Salt Lake City is uh, Heather. Hey, Heather. All right. Grant, where are you from? Detroit. Detroit? All right, Grant, come on in. Now, Grant, I want to confirm for the audience, um, your testimony is intact, right? Absolutely, yep. All right, well, welcome. Tonight we're doing hymns, uh, Mormon fight songs. So Mormons are a rowdy lot, and they like to fight. Um, so we're going to go through the, the, the song. Let's call the band up here, and um, we're going to start out... All right, so uh, let, let's just jump right in. We're, we're going to start with the, the um, Spirit of God. Um, so, uh, Maestro, take it away. That is a long song. And was Brant playing Tetris during that song? Did you guys notice? Was, is that what you were doing? Or yeah. is it Angry Birds? All right. Um, there's two more verses to this song, so thank you're welcome for sparing you all six verses. Um, did anybody notice the, uh, the fourth verse there? Um, this, this song was, um, was one of the originals. It, indeed. <laughs> it was... Uh... It was actually included in Emma's first hymn book, um, but it was sort of put in at the last minute because they figured that because it's the last song in there and it has different typesetting, so um, it was a last-minute addition. Um, addition, I mean. Um, and you know, Emma's hymn book was not 1835. 1835, right? yeah. Um, that's the one that that uh, God commanded her to 
create so that the saints could worship God through song? Yes, I actually have my scriptures here. So we're going to, uh, you can all turn with me, um, if you would, to Doctrine and Covenants, uh, section 25. Um, it's somewhere in here. Uh, that um, she's an elect lady, um, and that she's supposed to create hymns. It's somewhere in here. Oh, verse 12. For my soul delighteth in the song of the heart, yea, the song of the righteous is a prayer unto me, and it shall be answered with a blessing upon their head. Wherefore, lift up thy, their, thy heart and rejoice and cleave unto the covenants which thou hast commanded. Um, so, yeah, Emma in 1830 was assigned to make a little hymn book. Of course, they got rid of the, uh, the verse that talks about washing and being washed and the anointing of feet, which most of us don't even get to have, right? Isn't that the second anointing? All right, so this, this fourth verse here, uh, it's actually the sixth verse in the, in the real song. We'll wash and be washed and with oil be anointed, with all not omitting the washing of feet. Now, in the Kirtland Temple, Grant, they, uh, they, they started the endowment, right? Yep. And the endowment had... The stuff, yes. Yes, washing of feet, yes. right? Um, well, for those of you who have been through the temple now, you'll know that... Well, for most of us, they don't wash our feet anymore, right? So you, you can't have the line that you're not going to omit the washing of feet when you've sort of omitted the washing of feet. So that's why that verse won't appear in your scriptures anymore. Now, we were reading, um, to get ready for this uh, program, we were reading a book that, that was published by Deseret Book that uh, went through each of the songs. And uh, one of the things that the author pointed out was that these songs all talk about armies and fighting and stuff like that, but we're supposed to take that figuratively. Um, that it's not really about the armies of heaven. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read church history, especially what they were talking about when they went through the uh, Kirtland Temple, this song, I believe, is taken literally by the, the saints at that time. The Spirit of God like a fire is burning. I mean, they describe that, right? Uh, the angels are coming and visitations and all that kind of stuff. This song is great. It's kind of a dirge, and it takes nine minutes to get through, but it's great because it really gives you an idea of what the saints um, were practicing it, at the it's time. It's a dirge? Did, did, don't you, I mean, we had drums and guitars yeah, that were still I, I think snoring. Yeah, I sing it at, at the right speed, it's, it's, it's a good song. I think we, up, we up-tempoed every one of these songs by ten beats at least, and, but... Well, I, I don't know if it's just Sister Penelope on her organ, but everywhere, in every ward I've ever been in, everything dragged. Right? Yeah. Am, am, I, am I wrong here? No, you're right. I'm just saying, how, how much of the hymns, the fact that they sound like funeral songs, are the fact that you don't have people that know how to conduct them correctly and know, you know, when it says sing it, I, I don't know what it says, how to sing it with this one, but like sing it proudly or triumphantly. <laughs> they don't know how to sing it like that. Oh, exultantly. Yes. exultantly is what it says in the hymn book? What, what the hell does that even mean? I don't even know what that word is. Exultantly. All right, well. well but, but we, we, we all sing the songs the way we sing them. We sing them the way they sing them in general conference, right? Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right? With the, big, with the big pipe organs, you know? You know, th this song wasn't written for the Kirtland Temple dedication, even though I think we've all had lessons that, that tell us that. Wait, didn't I just say that? Oh, I'm sorry. I guess you had your facts 
screwed up. Um, it was in Emma's hymn book, 1835. The temple dedication wasn't until March of 1836. Um, but it was sung at that at that dedication, and it was it was sung to the same tune as um, now. Now let us rejoice. And we don't know what that tune is. It, it could be the same tune, but um, it was called something different, and we don't know. There's also some uh, records that say that it was in the Messenger and Advocate in January, and it was American, yes, American Star, Star or something. And I've never... It's lost to history. Maybe if it was American Star, it wouldn't sound like a funeral dirge. That's Maybe. what we need to do. Well, right. you know, they, the early hymns, and even in the green hymn book, it has those meters in the back. The early hymn books had no music in them at all. And the early saints loved to just sing them with whatever song they, they came up with. So they, didn't, they would sing this different songs with different um, tunes all the time. So sometimes we don't even know what it was they were singing. Yeah, it wasn't until about 45 years later that, that a lot of the hymns that we know today got kind of assigned with their, with their tunes that we sing them to today. I think there was probably some resistance to doing that because people liked changing them up. People liked singing them to the different tunes, but we're stuck with whatever they happened to land on. So where did we get the organs? Because in Nauvoo, they would have used brass bands, right? Didn't Brigham Young um, ship a pipe organ out here? I don't know. It was just a fad. Oh, it was just cool at the time. Yeah, and another thing about the Spirit of God, um, I had a friend who was uh, a member of the Community of Christ Church, and she told me about a song that she loved as a little girl. She was no longer active in that church, but it was the Spirit of God, and when she told me that, I was like, what? How can you have the same, you know, song as we do? Even though I knew the origins you know, both came from Joseph Smith, but I was like, no, that's our song. You can't, you can't sing that. But, so, and they do still sing it, but I heard that recently they changed um, Armies of Heaven to Angels of Heaven. What? Not to make us. It more friendly. Oh, you mean the Community, Community of Christ. Christ. All right. All right, any more thoughts on the Spirit of God? I have one. Um, the last question, uh, stanza or whatever it's called says for he that receiveth receiveth his penny appointed must surely be clean at the harvest of wheat and i looked up what penny appointed means and that's a parable jesus taught about people harvesting wheat and it didn't matter if you showed up like at the crack of dawn and worked all day long or if you showed up at the very end of the day both people would receive the same reward at the end a penny a penny (laughs) right but I'm kind of wondering if the last line is putting the Mormon spin on it. Like, sure, you can show up at the very last minute, but you better be completely repented, just like those people who started at the beginning of the day. If you join the you join the church at the last second and start trying to live your life right at the last second, you're not really caught up with people who started at the beginning of the day. That, that could be totally off. That's just something I thought about. All right. Well, to me, that's the lamest song, so let's move on. Um, uh, I I do have to admit, while while, while the band's getting ready here um, for our next song, the thing I miss most about going to church is singing songs. So one of the reasons I'm doing this tonight is because I like to sing these songs. Um, So the the rest of these are all songs that I like, and that's how they got on this list. And they're fighting songs, right? All right. So let's let's move forward with um, High on the Mountaintop. 
Down be hurled. <laughs> All right, so um, we, we resurrected a verse on this song too. Um, so this song is this song written about Utah, right? It was not written in Nauvoo. This was written in Salt Lake City. And when we're talking about Deseret, we're talking about good old Salt Lake City. So you've probably never seen verse four there. We just sang it, but then hail to Deseret, a refuge for the good and safety for the great, if they but understood that God with plagues will shake the world till all its thrones shall down be hurled. So I. <laughs> I like this song because um, this really, in, in 1850, 1860, you had no choice but to come to Utah. And if you didn't, they would excommunicate you. So everyone was going to gather to, not Zion in Missouri, but to Salt Lake City, right? Because this is Zion. where the, the, the news, the, de the desert, I don't think Deseret. they ever, they never called it Zion in, in the 19th century, did they? I think so. No, Zion was Zion was still Kansas City, and and, and for those guys, it, it never stopped. It says that me. he on Zion's hill, truth standard would unfold. Well, that's because they're talking about Zion's peak, <laughs> right? No, I mean, I mean, literally, they're, they're, this song was written in Salt. They're talking about that mountain no, right over in there. Zion peak. Oh, never mind. Well, one of these. We're talking about these mountains. Damn it, we're not right, talking but about they, back there. But they did we're here. call it Zion, didn't? Didn't they switch? Well, and Zion is wherever righteous people dwell. See, but that's later reading. The hills could, there could be hills in Jackson County. Well, they're little hills. Little hill, little, doesn't matter. There's hills spring, a hill? Spring Hill, right? There you go. Okay. But this one was written by Joel Johnson, who, um, rather than having a job, he got lumber from the mountains and brought it down to the um, hiding office. And then he got to pick from the storehouse stuff to feed his family with. Um, and so he he was would come down the mountain, and it was kind of treacherous with all of his load of lumber. Um, and he would see on Enzyme Peak a flag um, was up there, and it was waving in the breeze. And it was like to him, oh, good, I'm safe. I'm out of the mountain. Um, and so one time when he was waiting to get into the tithing office, he sat down and, and, and wrote this song. And um, he didn't write the, the music to it. He wrote the words. Um, the music was attributed to Ebenezer Bealey, but it was based on a tune by a different person. So um, there was a lot of borrowing in the early church, a lot of borrowing from other poems and also borrowing from other songs and kind of tweak, tweaking them. They did that a lot. So, so Brant, do you sing this song in Detroit? Yes, we do. Not that fourth verse, but... No, yeah, we, no one sings the fourth verse anymore. Um, about, I do like Hail to Deseret. Um, what, what do you all think when you hear Deseret? And do they still sing our lovely Deseret in the kids' mm -hmm. songs? It's in the regular hymnal. No coffee, no coffee, tea, and tobacco they despise or whatever. Is that still, is that still around? Yes. Yeah. All right. Um, what, yeah. what, do, you, do you guys ever talk about Deseret? Out in the mission field? Not really. Not, not really, just because, it, you know, we were told you don't need to gather to Deseret, set up the stage where you're at. So it, it always seems when, when at least we sing this, and if we ever talk about it in my words back home, it's always, oh, that was the way that, that the saints, they, they've gone through all these trials, getting on the planes, and, and now this is, this is their 
place. They've made it, and Deseret's their place. So that's kind of the context that we talk about it. But don't people in the mission field make fun of, like, people in Utah? Oh, all the time. Like, they... <laughs> all so, the time. Um, Only because they don't know them. That's because they don't understand the true... Sure. If they but understood. If they but understood. Then so, they could avoid the place. <laughs> So what I, what I really like about this song, especially, is it is it taps it. This is like mid mid to late nineteenth century, and it taps into that we are here and you guys are all out there. And not only that, we are going to, you know, we're gonna you're all going to be looking to us because we are going to be great. That that there was a real zeitgeist in the nineteenth century that everything was going to go to pot, everything was going to go to hell, and we were going to be the one people who were standing there victorious. Standing brightly. And especially when the Civil War started getting hot, Brigham Young was just ready to, to you know, raise the banner on Mount Zion and let the world see. Um, and um, Well, and this, this um, was also based on that scripture in Isaiah. You know, um, the mountain of the the, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Which we all know refers to Utah, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah, we all believe that, right? Or used to believe it. You guys are all apostates. But yeah, the, the, this is the mountain of the... The, the, the church produced a movie where they, they said, this is called Utah, and in the Ute language, Ute means mountain. You guys have seen that one, right? Ta-da! Isaiah. Well, there are mountains here. Why wouldn't they call it mountain? Do you really think Isaiah Brand? Go for me. I'm already on the hot seat as it is. hundred years ago, Isaiah's sitting in his cave. Or what, did he write the cave? I don't know. And he's, he's writing, and he's envisioning, like, Hebrew? But the context is... I, I think he was envisioning a bunch of blonde-haired, blue-eyed white people somewhere in the desert. Yeah, but, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, I'll, I'll buy that. <laughs> okay, so... All right, so any, any, any other comments on uh, High on the Mountain Talk? I have another one. All right. Go first. No, no, I've been talking too much. That's supposed to be a t-shirt if you were on Facebook today. Anyway. What, what is it? Uh, no, you go. No, 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 you go. That's supposed to, that was a suggestion. Anyway, um, when I sang this song, and even when I was singing it this time, I kind of felt like I always thought that, that, that this was eventually going to happen. You know what I mean? That, like, it's... Yeah, that this is the second coming, it just hasn't happened yet. And I wonder, did you guys feel the same way? Did you think, well, yeah, this is what's coming for the second coming? Wait, I wait, did. you didn't think it was now? You thought High on a Mountaintop was in the, in the future? Because I always well, thought... Well, talking about the... the yeah, place. talking about the destruction of all the governments in the world and how we're going to be the... We're going to take over the, last the world. Last one standing. Yeah. Oh, last one standing. Yeah. 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 Of course. So I never thought of this as, when I was a believer, I never sang it thinking, well, what were they thinking in the past? I always sang it thinking, wow, this is some really crappy stuff that's going to happen in the future. I never, I never thought of it as this is what the people in the 19th century thought. Well, it's been the end times for about 200 years, so. A lot longer than that. Yeah. I know we sang this as missionaries, and we had this thought that the world was looking to us, like walking around and like, you know, there's there's the guys. You know, we really thought that everybody everybody thought very highly of us. Did did you guys all we we always thought everybody knew the church was true, they just wouldn't accept it, you know? Well you and, know that one scene in Saturday's Warrior where the 
and the, the guy who's smoking cigarettes and drawing, and he sees Jimmy and he's like, you know something, don't you? I know something. <laughs> that's how we felt, right? They're looking at me because they know, they know I know. I think if I were to take off my active believing Mormon hat and put on my Mormonism is really, I know it's really dangerous, I know. Mormonism is fascinating hat. I, I think verse 3 is fascinating because it, obviously these are allusions to the temple. Anyone who's grown up in the church knows these are allusions to the temple that they're making. And this whole concept that, that will be taught in the temple, the law that will go forth will be from the temple, and then we're going to go and we're going to govern all the earth. And I think it's kind of what you were saying, John, as far as, you know, Mormons thought they were, it, it's just a matter of time and let's just wait until everything crumbles and then Brigham Young is going to rise up the, a great nation and we're going to take back Jackson County. I mean, that encapsulates it all. Well, yeah, yeah. for them, they were literally building the kingdom of God, mm-hmm. meaning that God would just come in and take the throne. But the, the, And you were talking about the author, Zilpa, you were saying that the author worked for the church. Well, everybody did that. I mean, there was no separation. You know, some people had their, but it was all Brigham Young saying, you will run a uh, sugar plant. You know, you'll go plant grapes down in, uh, in uh, St. George. So it was it was a little bit of a community uh, communal kind of economic system for them because like Joel he didn't have a regular job he just got stuff from the storehouse. Yeah, yeah. Well, there there were a lot of people sucking up that tea. All right. Um, but wait, we can't move on without mentioning uh, we're going to save ourselves. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Finish your thought, and then I'll be back. And all our dead. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I'm going back a little bit for a comment. Is that okay? Yeah, please. Okay, so we're talking about the mountaintop and whether that's that was future-looking, whether it was um, um, already I actualized. I still say it's ends on beach, <laughs> but you guys can believe what you want. I have to tell you this prophetic thought I had today. I was driving down the freeway, and um, I'm a big proponent, a big fan of Mormon, uh, Mormon Think. Y'all, read, y'all know about Mormon Think? <laughs> And I realized if you if you take the um, the acronym MT Mount, it's the new Mount of Truth. <laughs> <laughs> All right, n- nice plug. All right, <laughs> that's cool. All right, um, to, to to introduce our next song while our band is coming up, um, I went to BYU, of course, and sometimes they have the Tuesday devotionals at eleven o'clock. And once I was there. And it's about uh, 10.55, and a, and a hush falls over the, all the students. You know, you're talking about 10,000 students in there. And then they start standing up. And simultaneously, they all start singing this next song. We thank thee, O God, for a prophet. And everybody joins in. And the song ends. And then everybody sits down, and a few minutes later, the, the university president gets up and they just went on with the, the program. But the point is that sometimes they sing this song when the prophet enters the room. So this is a very special song. Maestro, take it away.
Okay, Mitt Romney is currently running for president, and this song is sung very often, right? Yeah. Very often. Can you read me the last two lines of the second verse? <sighs> really? <laughs> the wicked who fight against Zion will surely be smitten at last. I want that Mormonism back. <laughs> I mean, own it. You know, we sing it all the time, right? Yeah. But you, you didn't like the stuff in uh, some of the other hymns that were a little uh, rambunctious, I'll put it. No, I like it all. I like it all. I, I like the smith. I, I like a religion that says, if you don't come with us, then we're going to smite you. <laughs> we're not going to smite you, but God will. That's the same thing. Same thing. Same thing. God, God works for us. Did you vote for Bush? You're with us or you're against us? Well, I mean, that's the song, right? Uh, um, no, I mean, what my point is that is that the church is pretending to... Here's my point. All right. <laughs> Write this down. <laughs> so there's certain th- elements of culture that get sort of calcified and stuck and that won't change very fast. Like so, missionary uniforms? <laughs> like missionary uniforms. So you have the PR department out there like spinning a new church... But there's all this great stuff buried in these hymns. And this speaks more to the heart of Mormonism because the, the, our children are not listening to Otterson's office and the PR stuff that they're pumping out. But they're singing this damn song every three weeks, right? So, so that surely be smitten at last is getting driven into their little brains over and over and over again. And it's sort of, it's sort of clever. In a way, right? Because you can say one thing, but then you keep singing these songs and reading these scriptures over and over and over again, right? So this, am I wrong? This is the church, right? They may not want to say it. Are, are you getting, are you getting, my eyes are pouring into you. I normally don't have to deal with that, right? I know. I, I'm so used to just looking at a computer screen, like, <laughs> screaming at the screen. Um, all right. Let, let me, let me try middle of the road. And, and I know I'm. I'm not going to make you all happy. Um, okay, Zion. Zion could be, uh, it doesn't have to be Mormons. It could be a group full of happy, religious, righteous people who might be Mormons or might not. And God's going to smite everybody else? Maybe. What about the, what about the happy atheists? What, what about the you, happy atheists? Oh, you, well, you could be a happy oh, atheist no and a thing, good right? person. Does it make it better that they're smiting with a smile on their face? That's how I like to Maybe. live my life. But okay. and we are begging the question, what exactly does it mean to smite? <laughs> well, I think the last song said plagues, right? So, like, uh, the flu? I always thought smiting was, like, smacking or something like that. Um, uh, uh, and, you know, we, the, we have lots of precedent. If you read, like, conference reports from the 19th century, everything coming down the line from malaria to typhoid and and people dying in childbirth was identified as you know a godsmack right so so i mean anything bad happening out there was 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 god and actually they, they turned that in internally because they said well god is chastising us and then the book of mormon's full of that stuff isn't it that god's always uh, angry and then and then uh, taking it out but brant it does say the honest and faithful will go and the ones who don't Accept this message, they'll never be happy. So the atheist might be out. But <laughs> even such, the happy such happiness. They've grown happiness. And it's all like sex and drugs. This is the this is the this is the true happiness. But um, in verse three, let's let's go back a couple lines there. Um, 
because this is a word that is, it is, I, I told you there's things that are stuck in these hymns. Eternal perfection. Yeah. Uh, remember, I don't know 19, that we teach that. The, <laughs> in the 19th century, there was a debate, and the, there, was a, there were two camps. And the one was headed by Brigham Young, and the other was by Orson Pratt. And they fought it out over the pulpit. I wish they would do this sort of stuff today. And the, 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 the two avenues of thought, and they're still out there today, is do you keep progressing forever, or do you reach a point and you stop progressing? So, so the Orson Pratt camp said, you'll reach a point of Godhood, and God is perfect and omnipotent, and boom, you're done. There's nothing more. God knows everything. God does everything. God understands everything. There's nowhere to go from there. It's like the speed of light. Once you hit that point, you can't go on. Brigham Young said, no, 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 it's eternal perfection. It's eternal progression. It's something that happens over and over and over, and you keep progressing, you keep growing. Now, there's later theologians have said, uh, that's just talking about having lots of kids. So you'll just keep having kids for years. That's the progression. Yeah, yeah, that, that's how, why you never... Didn't McConkie say something like that in Seven Deadly Heresies, that the concept of eternal progression was one of those seven deadly heresies? McConkie called it a heresy, mm -hmm. but the heresy was started by Young, mm -hmm. so, you know, go, go figure. So were a lot of heresies. So, so that's what I'm saying, this, this, this language, and we've showed you examples where they pulled the language out because it's embarrassing, but this language gets stuck in here, and there's theological concepts buried in these, in these songs. And everybody's just singing them along. Okay, you were talking about some of the words that we use and whether we really think about what it's saying or not. And I, I, in the first verse, it uh, it's thinking, you know, thinking the prophet for sending us the gospel to lighten our minds with its rays. I, I'm just curious. Uh, I remember promising at some point to avoid light mindedness. <laughs> but it's but it's suggesting here that the gospel is what would lighten our minds. I'm not sure exactly what that phrase is supposed to mean. You know, I, when I think it would be that you're unburdened by the process of thought, so <laughs> lighten your mind that way. Uh, the, the next, the next um, stanza, we feel it a pleasure to serve thee and love to obey thy command. It's, it's ambiguous. Who are we talking about? Are we talking about the prophet or are we talking about God? V is not capitalized. Is there is that, a difference? Is that something that you typed in there? Um, if V is not capitalized, they're talking about the prophet. Um, yeah, I've taken it to be the prophet. What about in the I, hymn book? Don't you have a hymn book? Oh, there's one down there on the floor. Oh. Um, I, 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 think, I think to Greg's point, uh, most Mormons would have them synonymous, right? Um, you know, to obey the, the obey prophet is to obey God. Um, but 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 this is this is a key Mormon concept, right? Yes. Pleasure in service and obeying. So. Well, um, I have a good quote. Oh, do you have something to say before I get into my? Go ahead, and then I'll talk. I love quotes, but uh, all right. This is a Hinckley quote, um, early '90s. So he wasn't the prophet yet, but he was the first counselor. And talking about this song, he said. How thankful we ought to be, how thankful we are for a prophet to counsel us in words of divine wisdom as we walk our paths in these complex and dis difficult times. The solid assurance we carry in our hearts, the conviction that God will make his will known to his children through his recognized servants is the real basis of our faith and activity. We either have a prophet or we have nothing. And having a prophet, we have everything. 
I'm just curious, oh sorry, I'm just curious by a raise of hands, how many people were at BYU in the Marriott Center when Cody, Judy, no? I was no on one my was mission. Here? You were there I heard, I heard when that happened, it. when they, everyone, when everyone sang the, we thank the God for a prophet? Right, Steve, not everybody there? out there in podcast land knows what, who Cody, Judy is, so you're going to have to tell us. He was, well, it was just, uh, we were all in the Marriott Center for a devotional. And you were there. I was there. And he, I was kind of, you know, to the right of the podium. And I saw this guy jump over the little, you know, thing that holds people back. And he ran up and I, he had a ponytail and he had like this white kind of tan, like light suit on. And I remember thinking, I thought he was going to flash or run by the stage. But uh, he stopped and jumped up on the stage, and, and it was a, you know, he basically... Didn't he have a briefcase? He had a briefcase, and he had, like, what he said was a bomb in his hand. It was, like, two of the old cordless phones kind of taped together. <laughs> and so he, uh, he it, was a long, it was a while. It was got to be probably, I don't know, it seemed like a long time, 15, 20 minutes. Oh, sorry. Oh, he, he was down there? No, so he was up on the stage, you know, so they cleared everybody off. They cleared everybody off the stage except for President uh, Hunter, Hunter and his two bodyguards stayed up and everyone else got off. And Cody Judy just, you know, he started talking and then they turned off his mic. And so then everyone was, for a couple of minutes, everyone's kind of just all unsettled, all this going on, everyone's kind of, and then everyone just started singing hymns. So one of the hymns I remember they sang was, we think they got for a prophet. And it was, you know, kind of, I don't know, inspiring at the point where everybody was singing and, and eventually um, the crowd basically rushed the stage from behind. People started dropping in behind where they have that backdrop thing and they dropped in back there. And then, you know, everyone rushed Cody Judy and... That was it. Yeah, my understanding is that they started singing that song. Right. And Cody thought they were singing it to him. He was under delusion that he was a prophet. And he dropped his guard. And then they tackled him from behind. From behind. Well, there was, a guy, there was a guy that ran up. And what it looked like to me is it looked like he had... This guy ran up to the side of the stage. It was like a student. And it looked like he had a hanger. And he was kind of like going like this, trying to like get the thing out of his hand. But what it was was it was mace or pepper spray. He was spraying, but when the light hit it, it looked like it was some kind of metal thing. And so someone pepper sprayed him, and then that's when it happened. Then Cody Judy kind of like, kind of started going like falling because the pepper spray, and then that's everyone that was behind all just came and piled on. And I jumped down. I was like a couple feet from this dog pile that they jumped on Cody Judy, which is stupid because if we did have a bomb, we would all have been dead. But <laughs> I jumped down there to be in the thick of it or whatever, and there was, I mean, there was cops all over. Like, as soon as that happened, there was all the people had gotten down and infiltrated the scene. And so they were, you know, flashing their badges. And within a minute or two, everyone was out of there except for police. But yeah, yes, but he did have a bomb. He, oh, yes, no. he did. According, oh. he, he, he had he, the Book of Mormon he, in that oh, book. Yeah. That's what he, <laughs> that, that was his work. Uh, Cody's out of jail um, and he's on his medication. So um, he, he's supposedly doing okay. But We lost oh. the prophet. One last thing I was going to say is, you know, as we sing these songs, to me it's just a testament to the programming the church does, because I don't know if anyone else here, as you sing this, it does, it starts tugging at your heartstrings. I mean, it's like, you just think of, I mean, I was in the church for 40 years and went through all these these songs. It's like, it kind of, you know, it's, it's amazing how... Because all these memories come flooding back. It's kind of like smells, how smells bring back memories, you know? I mean, you sing some of these songs, and it brings back missionary memories and all these different kind of memories. And 
I guess it's John and Zilpha's version of a bachelor party. You know, like, do you really want to do this? Do you really want to leave the church? It's like your last chance to go back and, and go back the other way. <laughs> but, you know, to that point, um, you know, with your, your Cody Judy story, that, that connected with this song. There were a lot of students who talked about that being a very religious experience for them. Oh, it was for me at the time, yeah. Um, because because they, they sort of conquered this... Um, Nihor, whatever he was, with this, with this hymn, you know, and 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 it it, it was a, a real experience. I remember when the dog pile happened, you know, and they started pulling people off because he was bloody. I mean, he got people were on the bottom of the pile, just like you know, punching him on the bottom of the pile. And there's one guy they pulled off at the very end who had probably been doing most of the punching. He yelled, "That's what happens when you mess with the elders of Israel," and everyone went. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, th- I mean I, we're making light of it, uh, but I mean, this is this is powerful stuff, um, you know, for, for people who are inside. And like you say, even for us, it's still. Um, I, I the only time I go to conferences for the priesthood session for our reviews, and I that's I love standing up and singing the songs and hearing all those people, and and and, and they're they're great. Any other thoughts on? I have one. Oh, okay. So uh, I just wanted to you know, bring, bring this out here because it's always bothered me that this song is sung for almost every prophet related occasion. Uh-huh. And except for the first verse or the first line it has nothing to do with prophets. It's all just singing praises to God. And so I just thought I'd bring that up because I mean, it, everybody thinks that this is the prophet song, but it's not really, it's just in the title. Well, and that's that's full circle where I started. The, the second two verses, especially, are not just praising God, but it's juxtaposing, really juxtaposing our blessing versus the everybody else out there. They both end with, uh, you know, a, a stanza of the rest of the world getting theirs, and we're going to be rewarded, and they're going to be punished. Well, go, going along with your comment. Um, you know, I've also heard it from kind of the other side of the fence that, well, this is always just a, this is a prophet song and this is, this is our prophet worship that we have in the church and everything like that. Whereas I, I kind of agree with you. It's just those first two lines. Now, those last couple of lines in, in the different stanzas, we might need to talk a little bit differently about that. But, but that first line, the, the accusation that this is a prophet praising song, it's just, it's a God praising song, but yeah, we, we do happen to do it with, with prophets. So. Well, and which is why people from the outside, rightfully get confused because this thing, these things all get meshed together and we're going to have a great example of that coming up in a song or two here alright, so we move forward um, let's press on and move to the next song alright, I need to point out uh, the linear uh, line notes here there are two separate choruses that are sung simultaneously on this one don't get this wrong wrong so uh, we have the the, the um, Soprano um, chorus and then the rest of us.
All right. You guys mixed it up a little bit. You know, John, just let me say, you guys sound great, and we would love to have you back at church on Sunday because <laughs> we really need some help with singing. Just, I'm just going to throw that in, in, invitation out there. <laughs> you, you bring a drum kit, and maybe I'll show up. Um, let us all press on. They, they sing this every conference, right? I mean, every, every single one. Um, it's a good one. I like it. Uh, yeah, yeah, I like it. <laughs> I'm trying not to say the same thing I said before. All right. So, so the enemy derides, really. The Lord is on our side. We will not heed the wicked, um, but the Lord alone we will obey. Um, some people make fun of me for saying the church is culty. It's is culty? Cult. Is that what you said? Um, this is cultiness. Um, to say that, that we'll not heed what the rest of the world is saying. Are you taking it literally? I mean, you can take it figuratively. I mean, the wicked being the devil and, and bad. And, uh-huh. Don't point at me. Well, I don't mean to point at you. Um, I'm just so used to a computer monitor in front of me. No, I, I mean, okay, Satan, wickedness, uh, you know, bad things. Don't heed to that. I mean, is that really that culty? Well, this song is us and them. I mean, straight through and through, right? Yeah. We, it's us against the world. And... There, there's not, there's no middle ground. Um, you know, right in the beginning, let us wield a sword, the mighty sword of truth. Um, we will not retreat, retreat, though our numbers may be few. Well, isn't oh, so with the sword of truth? Isn't there, isn't that biblical precedence there? Like in Paul? I, yeah, I think so. He takes on the whole armor of God. Well, I mean, yeah, they weren't making this stuff up, but nevertheless, it's still, they're still taking it seriously, right? Yeah. Um, I won't deny. I mean, Mormons, Mormons have a, we really do have a persecution complex where if you're not with us, you are against us. And anything that, that goes contrary to how we think is, is obviously wrong and of the devil. I mean, I'm, that's something that I've been, at least within my own little word back home that I've been trying to do. So can you about. bear testimony of it? I can bear testimony that we have a <laughs> so persecution complex. So the, the complex. question is, if, if you identify the world as wicked, how do you determine what's not wicked? I mean, the first answer Anything is it's useful. Like microwaves aren't wicked because they're useful, right? <laughs> what? Oh, so if, it, if it's useful but it's not of the church, then it's not wicked. Because because there's this this real perception that nothing outside the world can be trusted. There was a conversation that happened this last week where one of the people in the couple is sort of coming out of the church, one's still in, and the one who's still in said, "Well, how do you know any of that stuff at all is true?" You know. It's an existential question that, that I think, there, there's, to me, there's all sorts of religious people who are willing to say, no, no, science is not any way to find truth. It has all sorts of problems. And then they'll climb on a Boeing 747, right? If they really believe that, they wouldn't do that. So, so practically, they say, they say they use science and rely on those principles all the time of, of truth, of, of the outside world. But then rhetorically, they say, no, no, it's all wicked out there. Right, because yeah. it, because it's useful. It's it's border keeping because you don't have to specifically go through and say this is true, this is false, this is wicked. And and I I've seen the last few years not only in Mormonism but in all sorts of Christian circles and that that they've ret- retreated from identifying things as the wrath of God. You know, you you would have if if um, Katrina or what was the big tsunami that hit uh, out there a few years ago. There was, there was a real backlash of people who said this is the wrath of God. Well, even with 9-11, it was the same thing. 
there was some reverence that came out and said that that was because I think that, I forget who it was, but one reverend came out and said it was because of homosexuality in America, and that was what caused it. But a lot of people have been retreating because, frankly, you, that's not, you can't say stuff like that. That's not no, right. But, but it, once again, it's still buried in the hymns, you know. Uh, but I, I do want to point out something in the third verse. Was there, go ahead. Yeah, one of the comments I wanted to make was um, where it says in the second verse, though our numbers may be few, and um, certainly a lot of us have seen going around <coughs> graphs that represent the number of people who have ever lived on the earth versus the number of people who have ever been LDS, baptized, endowed, sealed. And it's such a minuscule, minuscule, absolutely scientifically insignificant number. And it goes back to the existential question if this is so important, why are so few people exposed to it in their lifetime to receive the blessings of accurate faith? If, this, if there are blessings that come with accurate faith, why is this such a broken process? So I think it's interesting how some people think, yes, that it's going to be few, it's going to be the elite, the few. This is almost a Seventh-day Adventist idea of only 144,000, but again, it goes back to the to the more plan of salvation question is why would some, if the gospel is true and it's such a wonderful blessing in people's lives, why are so few people going to receive those blessings? So, anyway. Yeah, it's an excellent point. And that's why there's been that debate in Christianity for, you know, since Calvin of, of the, of the, those who are just selected through God's grace versus those who choose. And it's, it's a tough question. And I think early Mormon leaders and still buried in Mormonism today would say, well, they, they say at a youth conference, right? You're the very elect. You you were valiant before you came to earth, and that's why you were put into an LDS family, so that you could um, bear the sword of truth. So, so especially in early Mormonism, that rhetoric that we sort of retreat from a little bit, that sort of worse of the, the, the elect, they really thrived on that, and they thought themselves to be very, very special. And it's, it's, it's very funny, that dynamic, because... You know, something like, um, you know, not giving the priesthood to, to, to those of African descent, 99.99% of Mormons are embarrassed by that now. Where before the answer, well, God only gives the priesthood to some, and we just happen to be those delightsome few. They, they didn't seem to have any problem with that. We have a problem now. I have another thought. Unless you guys want to. Well, I kind of want to jump on and, and uh, defend brands a little bit. Because I'm picking on it? Yeah. Thank well, you. I feel like, on the one hand, you're saying there's all of these really like strident things that the church used to say, and now it's milk toast. And then you point to Grant and say, see all these horrible things that are in these hymns? Yeah. How dare you believe that? So it's kind of like a he can't win in any scenario. Yeah. But yeah. Um, <laughs> I have. I have a few friends who are um, my age, a little younger, a little older, and uh, still believers. I would consider them TBM. But they they would look at something like this, and first of all, they would say, um, how are we supposed to know what's good and what's not good? And is the whole world an enemy or is the whole world not an enemy? They would say, we, God gave us an intellect and the Holy Ghost to make those determinations for ourselves, and we shouldn't be instructed in all things. And they would also say that um, the parts of the songs that say that only the good and, and, and uh, well, I don't know, nice people or the people who are doing what's right will be receiving a reward, 
they would say, you'll be very surprised in eternity to find out who gets that reward and who gets kicked out. There will be people who, and they always use it to like refer to my husband and I because they can't, they're trying to like put together their belief with the fact that we, you know, that we're not believers. And they say, well, we know you guys are really good people and you do what's right and you try to be, you know, Christian-like and, and help people around you. And you'll, you'll be surprised, you know what I mean? You'll get that reward and those, you know, self-righteous people who look down on others, they won't be getting the reward type of thing. So I think that, like, if you, if you look at, like, the general population of the current generation of people who are parents, at least... There are people who say the church helps us be good people, and yes, this stuff is coming, but like they frame it in a way of there's going to, like, the church teaches them the attacks on us are building. So it's not like they think I'm going to have to go get a sword and start killing people that I otherwise thought were good. They think our whole, our, we will be attacked and we'll have to defend ourselves. Does that make sense? It, it, it makes sense, but, you know, to, to paraphrase Bill Maher, sorry. You know, he, he, he says, you know, we're, we're basically lucky that no one takes religion seriously. Because if you look at what's in the, 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 the passages, it's pretty strident. And it's pretty out there. And we're only lucky because most of the believers take it back a few notches. And, they, and they're not actually going with what's, what's written there. Or they think they don't have to be this way yet. That it's coming, but it's not here yet. Now that's that's an interesting thought. So you know, I especially in the mission field heard that a lot. You know, that they were waiting. You know, we were sort of symbolic soldiers in the war, but there were people who wanted to be real soldiers. They were ready to kick some ass, and um, they were ready to go out there and and, and and fight for God's cause, which I can understand because you know, if, especially like in the MTC, you know, they're whipping you up into this frenzy with nowhere to go. You know, no release, and and you, you want no that. literally. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let me let me let me throw something else, which, which kind of lumps into kind of what we were all talking about. Is uh, and this is this is where my experience living in Detroit matters. I actually knew people growing up that said, "Oh, you're not allowed to play with that Smith boy down the road because he's not Mormon, and we don't know what he does in his house." So you're only allowed to play with the Mormons. And thankfully, my my parents. I, I think it's because they were both converts. They're both kind of like, I don't care who you play with. So. There, there's some of that in there, and then going along with what you said as far as um, finding good outside of the church. There's a lot of people that think that the only good, for example, the only good artwork you're going to find is in the church museum a couple blocks down the road. And, and you talk to anyone who is an art major, and I wasn't an art major, but you talk to anyone who's an art major, and they go, that's not very good art. You need to go see some real art. So that's, I, I think there's a, there's a group of us, especially um, on the Internet, who are starting to go that route. It's, it's some of the more stringent true believers who kind of fight that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also have the 13th article of faith. We seek after anything that's good or lovely or praiseworthy. So I think, I think the average, if you caught most people, you know, and got them alone and asked them, you know, now really, don't you think? They would say, yeah, well, there's a 13th article of faith and we're supposed to use our judgment. And, you know what I mean? They wouldn't stick with the stride, the world is bad, the church is good. We're being can too we, nice. We need to get to the next one. Can we mention real quick the first two verses? Because I think when I grew up, um, a lot of my motivation for doing things that the church wanted me to do, um, callings and such, was that I thought, you know, after this life, then I'll get some kind of reward for doing this. So um, that's right there. I think it's an important motivator. Well, and, and I, I think to the... Oh, we have a hand oh, up. Oh, go ahead, go ahead. Um, 
I'm not quite sure of the best way to put this because uh, I don't want it to be like gossipy and all that. And if this is like not really part of anything, you can totally edit it out later. But I, I and someone please correct me if I'm wrong before I get halfway through this because I'm going to be embarrassed if I'm totally wrong. But I believe um, uh, the the author of the particular hymn, uh, Evan Stevens. Evan Stevens. I was going to say even Stevens, but yeah. Um, <laughs> um, D. Michael Quinn. Um, is this gossipy? You, you know where no, I'm going. No, I was going to You know where I'm going with this, up. don't you? Okay. Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. We, we, um, we know you're going to say. I, yeah, I'm not sure the best way to put this. Uh, D. Michael Quinn in his book, Same Sex Dynamics Among oh, Early Americans, something like that, um, brings up uh, Brother Stevens as an example of one of the uh, homosexual members of the church through the church's history. Possible, yeah. Po po sorry, you're right. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> I want to be careful on that. And I find it interesting, and I don't want to bring it up in a gossipy type sense, because um, I wonder if this might... It, it this really bothered the family when it came out, and it probably still does, and I don't want to cause any issue there, but I do wonder if in 20 years or 40 years, when maybe some of this particular issue with the church you know, hopefully dies down, if this might not become something like an Elijah Abel or or a, a green flake for, for, for the church in, in that particular issue. I, I think he, he was a pretty good composer, and he's a great man, and I don't think that's anything that would, uh, you know, bring him down in any way. So, Yeah, he was um, the uh, chorister for the, or the, it, he was in charge of the Tabernacle Choir for quite a few years. Um, and he was but, single and well-dressed, well, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he, he was, um, he did have a fiancé who, who, like, had a brief illness and passed away, but before she passed away, she said, love me through your music. And that's what his, his family clings to as, oh, well, he would have married her if she would have survived. And then there was another lady who he um, supposedly was going to marry, um, but she didn't end up joining the church like he wanted her to, so she became his housekeeper until he died. And then after he died, um, she joined the church and got permission to be sealed to him posthumously. How do you say that word? Post posthumously. Yes. And that was like in 1935. It was probably one of the latest um, posthumous <laughs> sealings. Um. Yeah, that's true. That, uh, yeah, so single. We don't know about the homosexuality status, but it's possible. The one last thing I want to leave. We were talking about Zilpa. You point out that there is the reward in the afterlife. I do think in yeah. the third verse there is still the, the. If we do what's right, we have no need to fear. For Lord, our help will ever be near. In the days of trial, saints will cheer and prosper the cause of truth. I think there's still that element in, in Mormonism. <laughs> of that prosperity gospel that if we are righteous and God will bless us not only in the afterlife but today and I think that that should look the same also um, this is probably the, the quasi-essential Mormon hymn but this this song has a long and storied history
Mark, special thanks to you and the pipes. Wow. I, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty cynical. I, I mean, I still get goosebumps when I sing that song. Um, I mean, that, that is, that is like the quasi essential Mormon song, right? It's pretty rousing. Yeah. I didn't say arousing. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, so this song is about Joseph Smith, right? Um, for sure. Um, so, so this was not the original song that this, this was sung to. Right. Well, they think that it was originally sung to um, Hail to the Chief. So, um, yep. <laughs> so the, the, the newer version is better, I think. Um, um, yeah. And then it went through another, um, another tune. But, you know, they like to change them up, like we said, so... Um, but they settled on this one. I think they made the right choice here. Um, it's a fun one. But they all seem kind of Scottishy. So it's the Scottish national anthem, right? That yeah, the one that the bagpiper played. Yeah, so it's based on that tune. I, I heard a rumor that this used to be a like just the tune used to be a Scottish drinking song. Probably still is. Probably still is. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, okay. So there are yeah. just a lot of great stuff in here that we have to unpack. First of all, can we can we talk about authorship? Oh yes. Because the church has attributed this to W. W. Phelps, the same guy that wrote Spirit of God, but um, it originally appeared appeared in the um, was it uh, Times Times and Seasons in August, so not too long after Joseph was martyred or killed, whatever. Um, there was a section that said, Poems by Eliza R. Snow. And then it had one that was for John Taylor, and then under it was one called Joseph Smith. So, so it says, for John Taylor. And, and then the, the other one was, was for Joseph, Joseph Smith. Smith. And then this appears. Yes. So, and then there were a few other publications that, that had the poetry listed as by Eliza R. Snow. Um, but for some reason, in the 1863 hymn book, they put it as W.W. W. Phelps. That's the first time it showed up that way, and it stayed that way ever since then. So there's some controversy about who actually wrote the words. So why this is annoying to me is you've probably seen through all these hymns there's been changes made, right? And this is a typical of LDS publication. There's no footnotes. There's no note. You know, we have this, you know, we have a copy of that Times and Season at home, and there it is, boom, right there. It's the first known publication of this poem, and it's not, it's not attributed to, uh, to W.W. Phelps, it's, you know, so, so the, surely the church has somebody in that big tower down there who searches this stuff out, and, and, and why they won't acknowledge things like that, it sort of, sort of irks me. Yeah, of course, W.W. Phelps' family is sure that he wrote it, <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's a controversy. Okay, so was let's... Was the Phelps that was excommunicated? Yeah, yeah, he was excommunicated and they got, they got back in. I think... Yeah, the prodigal son. I, I can't remember the statistic of how many people were excommunicated in the early days. It was really high. You weren't cool unless you got excommunicated. <laughs> I just seem... Still true today, eh? I don't know. <laughs> I thought he was on our top ten. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was on our top ten. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Okay, so... Um, so you'll, you'll notice in verse 2, we uh, restored the, the original words. Um, Long shall his blood, which was shed by assassins, stain Illinois, while the earth lauds his fame. 
Um, so that was that was in the hymn book until 1927, when the church went on what they call what is it the goodwill good neighbor the good, <laughs> the good neighbor program where they 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 took all stuff like this out and they got rid of the oath of vengeance in the temple and cursing and, people and, and in the cursing temple. yeah and that that sort of thing. So so but 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 you know for almost a hundred years people saying. Stay in Illinois while the earth lauds his fame. While the earth lauds his fame. First of all, the second part of that sentence really hasn't come true, has it? Is the earth? Lauding? No, but it does say millions shall know, Brother Joseph, again, and I suppose that com- that has come true. All right, so so um, let's go to verse three because there's been this trend in the church lately to deny some of the early doctrines. Well, let, let's just see what this thing says. Great is his. This is Joseph Smith. We're talking about. We're not talking about Jesus. Great is his glory and endless his priesthood. Ever and ever the keys he will hold. Faithful and true he will enter his kingdom, crowned in the midst of the prophets of old. Um, the the belief was, and it's still out there for a lot of faithful Mormons, that Joseph Smith holds all the keys to this dispensation. In other words, he is the head of us, and you can't get into heaven or do anything except by going through Joseph Smith. So, so they would not only say Joseph Smith is an important guy because he restored the gospel, but he sits in some office somewhere, and I don't understand how the first presidency He's the, of the gatekeeper. Works. He's the gatekeeper. Instead of, um, what, Peter? Right. So, so, I mean, this song really, but the early saints, is a deification of Joseph Smith, um, um, pure, and, pure and simple. Well, um, it says, mingling with gods, he can plan for his brethren. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 for for Mormons, and I've heard it said that there's a lot of people who join the church as converts who sing this song for years before they realize that it's not about Jesus Christ, that it's about Joseph Smith. Kind of strange since it says Brother Joseph down there in the last uh, passage. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. Attention. Um, so so traitors and tyrants now fight him in vain. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Do you feel that this is a futile pursuit? Are you fighting in vain? You're a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Um, you, you know, I, to, to some extent, yeah. Um, Joseph Smith, I mean, what is it that... Oh, in, in, in Harry Potter, Ollivander is talking about Voldemort, right? And he says, he says um, you know, Voldemort was a great man. A great wizard. A great wizard, or whatever. You know, he did he did terrible things, yes, but he was a great person. And say what you will about Joseph Smith, um, he was a great person. I mean, he accomplished amazing things. And there's some things that still leave us scratching our heads today, um, because it's not really clear how he pulled everything off. Um, well, he almost didn't. He almost didn't. Yeah, yeah. He almost didn't several times. I mean, he got out of a lot of scraps. How many times did he get locked up in jail? Um, and, and he bounced back. How many times did he renew, renew his church, you know, and redefine it and give the people sort of what they needed to hear? And move. And, and you read some of the accounts of the people who knew Joseph, you know, like in Salt Lake later. They loved him. I mean, he was, he was, he was it. And he was the bomb. The man. And, and, and this song, you know, carried that forward and it's still being sung today with such, you know, we still look at him that way. Look at all the church videos of him. I mean, he's got a glow around him like the Virgin Mary, and 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 he's he's his facial features match Jesus Christ, right? I mean, he he he's the he's the uh, he's Apollo, he's uh, the Buddha, he's he's everything. 
right? Yep. <laughs> um, I'm so bad about that. I, I, I'm not criticizing. I'm yay, Joseph. Um, uh, it, it's just he. If, if people want to understand, because it gets confusing, what how Mormons look at Joseph Smith, just read these stanzas. You know. Go ahead. All right. Well, I was just going to say, you know, in that in. A lot of ways, I think Joseph was very much like a Bill Clinton kind of person in that he had tremendous charisma. People around Bill Clinton love Bill Clinton. They think he is the greatest guy ever. People will follow him. People, you know, even despite his scandals, people, you know, he's running international foundations. Um, Women, you know, he had a way with women and they would, you know, drop their panties for him and, you know, and it, it worked for him. And I think Joseph Smith very much had that charisma, that magnetism. People loved Joseph Smith, you know, right or wrong. People loved him. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we've lost this, the term, the prophet, um, only referred to Joseph Smith until the days of David O. McKay. Um, if you had said in 1944 or, or 38 or whatever, it said the prophet, everyone would have thought Joseph Smith. He was the prophet. And he had such an impact on, on, those, on those early saints and, and still today. Now, I just wish the Mormons would actually read what he's written, um, you know, because he's become such an icon that, that, that you know, you can go to Desert Book and buy his journal and read it, and you'll probably be here in the audience next year. Um, but... They, 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 you know, they, they revere the man in this, in this, on this level, um, but his persona, his presence, just expanded beyond everything he even said to, to where it doesn't doesn't matter anymore. Like what what he said. I mean, literally, people leave the church look and say, look at all these crazy things he was doing. You know, he was marrying other people's wives, and they were in the room. Doesn't that bother you? And they're like, nope. Nope, doesn't bother me. You know, he's the prophet, and and I don't want to hear that stuff because that 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 need for that hero, that figure that you know that is that is lauded here is so powerful and so strong that it transcends anything he could do. It's also interesting, you know. Some historians will play. Uh, uh, I don't know exactly what the historical term is, but basically, it's a what if game. What if this wouldn't have happened? And and a lot of people have said, what if Joseph wasn't martyred? Where would the church be? Would we still look at him like this? Would would the indiscretions and some of the uh, more difficult things that that we know now? I mean, would that have become an issue? Would that have splintered the church? I mean, polygamy was kind of doing it at the time, so it's like, you know, because he was because both him and Hiram were killed, we put them up on a pedestal. You can go to Deseret Book and buy those. I think they're they're stupid Mormon kids, but you could buy like Joseph and Emma pictures of them embracing each other, like they're an example that we should that we should view. But no one understands the real story behind it. So I understand what you're saying there. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think this is really a window into like human psychology more than anything about Joseph Smith. It's like we need that that sort of figure, and so strong. Now the question is, why do Mormons, or why did Mormons displace out? That's normally centered on like Jesus Christ as a person. You know, if you see like evangelicals talk about Jesus, you know, oh, he's my best friend. I, I love they. They really they really personify him as the id, the the ultimate person. You know what we all want to be, and then, you know all the what would Jesus do things. But for for Mormons, they've displaced that onto Joseph Smith. And that's not bad. I mean, if you look around the world, there's all sorts of religions that don't take Jesus Christ as their center. It's just, you know, Mormons say, well, why don't, why don't, why doesn't the world understand that we're Christians? 
And the world says, well, you know, praise to the man. You know, re- read that. Because, because that will help you understand. Because you're, you're, you're going down a different avenue than, than the rest of us are. And that hero is so strong. Now, I'm not a... I'm not a, like a church historian. I don't know if people look at Luther or Calvin in the same, in the same sort. You know, when there was that hero of the foundation of the church, they definitely didn't look at Henry VIII that way. But I, I don't know if, if they if they had that same sort of hero worship or it was something that was, uh, uh, you know, just at the start of these. Things. Well, some of them apply. I mean, some people look at, at Mother Teresa as, a, as as that kind of reverential and, and Gandhi as that kind of thing, and and so there's there's other examples, but not. I, I don't think to the extent that we do, especially considering. The, the role that Joseph played within the foundation of the church. I mean, some people looked at, at uh, uh, Pope John Paul that way too, but not to the extent that we do it. But the Pope John Paul is a great example because I think you see in this, and if you read some of the writings of the, the early church guys after Joseph died, that Joseph really became almost a saint for them, an intercessory. Um, I don't know of any instance of them ever praying to Joseph, but you know, it, it says here that... that um, you know, mingling with gods, he can plan for his brethren. You know, but Joseph is over there, and he's getting things ready for this kingdom, and 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 you know, he is going to to um, usher it in. Now, of course, they took this literally too. I mean, it's worth mentioning that the law of adoption was practiced at the time, so you know, people were adopted to Brigham. So, law of adoption basically men getting sealed to men, and so they would seal themselves up to Joseph Smith, and they believed that everybody had to be sealed to Joseph Smith by and by. So you could be sealed to Heber Kimball, who was sealed to Brigham Young, who was sealed to Joseph Smith. And then you were in the priesthood cone, the, the multi-level um, heaven marketing thing. I think but, it was Heber Kimball that said, Brigham Young is my God, and Joseph Smith is his God, and Jesus is Joseph Smith's God, and like that, and Adam is, well, we'll get to that one soon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, We've yeah, my comment was was on the I guess the way that it seems like we deified Joseph Smith. Um, I went to school in high school and middle school in Colorado Springs, and they have a lot of evangelical Christians there, and and uh, you know get the bracelets and everything. And, and unfortunately, there was a lot of us versus them going on with the the Mormons and the evangelicals. But I think the easy answer to that is that the we just see Christ differently. Um, it's not that we're having Joseph Smith takes Christ's place. It's that to Mormons, it dirties Christ to wear a bracelet with his name on it. You know, it, it's it's the whole thing with you know we don't want to say his name too frequently. You know, it's it's uh, it's not a matter of saying Joseph Smith is cooler. It's it's just that it, maybe we need maybe we need that person to be our buddy. You know, like you were saying with Christ. But Mormons don't feel like you can do that with Christ because that's bringing Christ down. That was my experience in Colorado Springs, at least, uh, the way that Mormons there felt, you know, just, you know, people up there saying, yeah, Jesus is my friend. Well, Jesus can't be that way because he's too holy for that. Yeah, I, I, think, I think so. Um, but I think we can relate better to Joseph, too, because he didn't live that long ago. So we can imagine, oh, he's like us, only better. It's hard to imagine like a real person, Jesus, you know. Yeah. Sounds like Joseph is the Some same. people would even say it's wrong to do that. I, I think it's a good idea, but <laughs> I, I think this is sort of valuable as a religious tool. And I think if you study um, other religions outside of American um, Christianity, you'll see more of this. You see a lot more of this in the the, um, the saints in, in traditional Catholicism and in Eastern religions where there's more there's a, a pantheism. There's more more than one God, um, and and I think Joseph Smith becomes 
a more understandable or more reachable, more human element. Because, you know, when you consider those people who really, really thought highly of Joseph, like Eliza and Brigham and Heber, these guys knew him. And he was a rough guy. You know, he, he would swear and he would drink whiskey and he went with the girls. And they knew that. They, they, they knew it. And they still thought very highly of them. So I think for them, Joseph Smith was sort of transcending those traditional roles and showing that, that this priesthood and this obedience was more important than just the traditional morality. And that, that was very powerful to them, I believe. All right. Um, so, kind of closing thoughts on these. I think that the us and them narrative um, is extremely powerful and probably hardwired in, in, into, our, into our DNA from, from very early, back when we were on the savannah. And that's one of the reasons religions and things like religions keep popping up over and over and over again. Because especially today, we're awash in this world where you're just bombarded with everything. You, you know, uh, we sort of evolved in small groups. And it's even, even 50, 60 years ago, there was, you were, we were in small towns and you went and farmed and then you could go to the bowling alley or you go to the dance hall. It's not like you had like a thousand choices. And I think that message of us versus the rest of the world, where things were changing, especially in the you know the 19th century, if you look at just from the time um, you know Joseph Smith was born to the time Brigham Young died, how transitional that America was at that time, and we're still experiencing that today. And I think that's what what I think people sort of fled from that, you know, and 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 these messages of, of we are here and we are in. Zion, and we're in Deseret, and tyrants will fight against us, but kings will laud us, and the enemies will fall, and we will be victorious. When you're just a poor dirt farmer in uh, Hangwich, I mean, that, that, can, that can boost your self-esteem, I suppose. No, yeah, well, it's still boosting people's self-esteem today. I mean, kids growing up in the church, at least my generation, we felt pretty dang special, and it was a it was a real uh, self-esteem booster to know that you were part of this magnificent organization that was just going to get better and better and the rest of the world was going to get worse and worse. All right. Um, I think we're ready to move on to our closing hymn. Um, I, I think one of the things that, um, you know, I'm sort of thinking about religion here and, you know, the the... the the powerful influence it has in our lives, and it is powerful and it's meaningful to sing. I, I'm not a very good singer, but I like to sing. And now that I'm, I'm not in the church anymore, I have little opportunity to do it. Um, and I, I wish we we could sort of figure out ways to do the, those sort of things more, where it's not just the best of the best who get to do it, you know. Um, so a lot of the hymns and not, um, came from popular songs from the day. They took Stephen Foster songs and they just wrote new words to it, or, or they picked they picked um, traditional songs before singing. So we decided to pick a song ourselves um, that's being played on the radio today. We're going to sing it as our closing hymn. Um, so um, this song is "The Cave" um, by a, by a group named um, Mumford and Sons. Um, they're sort of a little rock bluegrassy thing um, from I think from Ireland. Scotland? England? Oh, okay. So, um, so the cave, this song refers to the allegory of the cave, um, which, uh, um, Plato. which was Plato's um, um, allegory of 
sitting in this cave, being chained into this cave, and you see shadows on the wall all the time. And you never, you're chained into your little seat. So Around you your s- neck, you can't move your neck. Yeah, you can't, you don't see anything else. So you just accept that as reality. And then in the allegory of the cave, one of the slaves in there gets loose. And the, the one who gets loose can see, standing back behind everybody, that these are shadow puppets coming from the, 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 the shadow being cast by the fire in the mountain cave. And the person tries to tell everybody, hey, if you just get out of your seat, you'll see that these are all shadows. You're not seeing the object itself. You're seeing a, 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 a casted shadow of that object, um, which I think is, is meaningful to me because, I mean, obviously you'll see the parallels of the church, but in, in reality we are in lots and lots and lots and lots of caves that, we, that we've constructed for ourselves where we're seeing things as shadows of, of what they are. And, you know, we sort of need to try to... Uh, Break out. Break out. All right. Um, before we do the, the cave, um, I think we should thank all of our musicians because they've worked really hard and they've done an awesome job. We have Greg. I should probably mention that we only recruited these guys about two weeks ago. So they're doing not, awesome. Yeah. Um, and Brent. And, 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 and don't Brent, forget our Brent. <laughs> all right. So so we're all going to stand up and we're going to try to sing um, the chorus. These guys are going to sing the, the verses for us and we're going to try to jump in on the chorus. Raise your hand if you know the song. Okay, I love you people.
Thanks a lot, guys. Uh, special thanks. Uh, let's see. Heather Clarkson. Heather, you have the distinction. I have listened to every one of your podcasts. Heather's the director of the New Voices podcast. You can now subscribe to there. So if you want to appear, you're, you're all required to. You need to talk to Heather about that. Brant, who's, uh, who's he, I, he takes it in the, in the shorts for me, and I, I apologize. But thanks. Thanks. Thanks to Eddie Abbott, who's taking our pictures, Amy Blosh, Robin Hansen, Ted Hansen, uh, Jennifer, J- Jennifer Reed, yeah, uh, Richard Holdman, who is filming us tonight, uh, Rich Rasmussen, who brought our stools, is the editor of Mormon Expression, thanks, and um, um, Aiden, who helped us set everything up, and uh, this is a shout out to Richard Harris out there, we're all on your team, hang in there, brother, um, it'll get better. Um, so, and thanks to all of you, you know, uh, we're down, we're up to 125,000 downloads last month. Um, so, uh, we, we couldn't have done it without everybody's support. So, um, the after party will well, be... John? Yes, sir. A big thank you to John and Zilpa for putting this on. Uh, the, the, the after party is at the Marriott, which is just down the street, right? It's just right... Right there. You can stack right there. You can stagger over to it. All right. Uh, but if we all go, I don't know if we'll all fit. But we can try. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll pitch it. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Good night. Thank you. Eyes are on us now. All eyes are on.